The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you this morning, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. This morning we'll give attention to verses 29 through 36. Luke, chapter 11. 29 through 36. Luke writes these words. He says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. The final eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980 was not a particularly sudden event. For about two months prior to the actual eruption, there were signs that something was was ominous and looming on the horizon. There were earthquakes, and there were little sort of glimpses of volcanic activity, all of which signified to all who were paying attention that a major event was underway, that something significant was getting ready to happen in that mountain. The authorities had plenty of time, months indeed, to warn people and to sound the alarm that something was about to happen. They had months to warn the people who were living in the region that they needed to to leave their homes and get to safety. Yet despite the threat of the mountain and despite all of the signs that something really significant was about to happen, there were some people who chose to ignore the warnings that were given to them. There were residents who were told to leave the area. And even one expert had declared this. He said the chance of a major eruption was virtually 100%. And then there was a man called Harry Truman. Not the president, Harry R. Truman. I think we have a picture of Harry R. Truman. 
He was a homeowner who owned a home at the foot of Mount St. Helens. And he would have nothing to do with all these warnings being given to him about the mountain. He had been there for a long time. Truman's home was located at the south end of the, the sort of the mountain. And, and at the bottom of the mountain is a lake called Spirit Lake. And his home and little lodge that he operated was on the south end of Spirit Lake, really at the foot of the mountain. He was living, in fact, in, in the most likely pathway that lava would travel in the event of an explosion at Mount St. Helen. He was facing almost certain death. Government officials knocked on his door frequently and implored him to leave. His friends told him that to stay there was suicide. Family members begged him to leave. Harry Truman, in fact, became something of a celebrity during the time for his defiance of all the calls to leave. He believed that the danger was being exaggerated significantly. He said, quote, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. In spite of the fact that the earthquakes literally knocked him out of his bed, instead of packing up and leaving, he just moved his mattress to the basement and slept there. He said again, quote, this area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is in between me and the mountain. And the mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't going to hurt me, boy. Well, on May 18th, Harry Truman found out reality. Mount St. Helens erupted. And a pyroclactic flow of lava launched from that thing directly toward his home in a matter of seconds. In fact, the fallout from the explosion destroyed the entire lake and leveled some 200 square miles of timber. His lodge that he operated ended up being buried under about 150 feet of volcanic landslide debris. In the blink of an eye, Harry Truman was evaporated and no more. It's a sad and utterly tragic story, isn't it? That a man with more life to live refused to listen to the warnings, chose to ignore all the evidence that was right in front of him to his own physical destruction. The sad reality is that on a spiritual level, that same scenario plays out day after day on a catastrophic scale. Every single day, men and women depart this earth and go out in an eternity into everlasting destruction apart from God. And they do so not because they haven't had warning. They do so not because they are without help. They do so not because the evidence for an alternative was sketchy. They do so because having had all of the evidence right in front of them, they deny it. And they deny it to their own destruction. 
What we see in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 and following, is this reality in a very vivid encounter between Jesus and the Israelites of his day who've gathered to listen to him and to watch him. In a spiritual sense, many, in fact, most of those who are gathered on this day were in a spiritual condition precisely like Harry Truman's physical condition. They had all the evidence in the world that God was standing in front of them, and yet they denied it to their own destruction. It's a sad exchange, and the result of it really is a sad result for the most part. Because most who heard Jesus say these words on this day went out into an eternity apart from him, into an eternal hell. If you've been tracking with us as we've been going through Luke's gospel in chapter 11, the immediate context previous to this encounter uh, is an encounter where Jesus had cast out of a demon from a man who had been possessed by this demon, and the demon had rendered him mute. And in response to that, to that event, the people who were watching, at least many of them, if not most of them, came to the conclusion that yes, a miracle was done. Jesus had indeed cast out a demon, but they concluded that he had done that not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, brought them out into the open and exposed the foolishness of what they were thinking. It was really a stunningly ignorant claim, and it defied any sense of logic. And yet for some, it was easier to embrace that than it was to embrace the truth. You see, their, their willful unbelief had blinded them to the truth. They couldn't see it. They were completely blinded to reality, and they were trapped in utter foolishness. As Luke continues that same really general theme, he includes for us a little transitional passage in verses 27 and 28. I'm not 100% sure. One day maybe when we see Luke in heaven, we can ask him why he included those two verses there. I think maybe because uh, the previous passage, the assessment of the people, was such a dismal sort of a response, and the passage immediately following it that we'll look at this morning was also not very encouraging. I think he wanted us to know that at least one lady in the mix got it. Verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. A really fascinating little thing that happens there. In the midst of these people claiming that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan, one lady in the crowd is so overcome with the reality of who he really is and what he's really doing that she shouts out for everybody to hear this thing, blessed is the woman who raised you. Blessed is your mom. The first century women often saw their importance in relation to the importance of the children they bore. And so this statement would have made a lot more sense to the crowd on that day than it does to us in our day. In the midst of all this rank unbelief, this one woman cries out, she believes. She wasn't having any of this nonsense. She knew who he was. She knew he was blessed. She says, blessed was your mom. And Jesus responds to her gently as a sort of gentle sort of exhortation by saying, blessed rather are those who hear 
the word of God and keep it. We really could spend an awful lot of time just talking about that, but we'll come back to that theme at another time. But we can at least conclude a couple of things. Number one, Jesus is saying that it's better to hear the word of God. It's more blessed to hear his word and to obey it than it is to be a physical relative of Jesus. If you hear the word of God and you keep it, you're more closely related to Christ than his physical family was. It should also really eliminate any nonsense about worshiping Mary as though she was some sort of deity. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The crowd to whom he was speaking was hearing the word of God, but they weren't keeping it. And so he continues his conversation with the crowd. Luke tells us this, and it sort of set this up like a courtroom, if you will. In verses 29 through 30, we have the judge issuing a judgment. In verses 31 and 32, he calls into the courtroom, if you will, figuratively, two witnesses to validate his judgment. And then he explains his judgment a little further and then gives a little glimmer of hope in the midst of it all. At least that's the way we'll take it this morning. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say to them, this generation is an evil generation, for it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now Luke notes for us something very important here. He tells us that the crowds are increasing, and this shouldn't surprise us. Christ was a dynamic speaker. He was a powerful communicator. He powerfully communicated in ways that no other traveling preacher could even come close to. His teaching was unique. His person was unique. The authority with which he spoke was unique. He spoke in a way that people could understand, that piqued their interest, that captivated their attention. And of course, along the way, he was doing miracles as well. So it shouldn't surprise, it shouldn't surprise us that people are coming and they want to hear more and they're telling their friends and the word is, travel, is spreading and people are coming in from a distance to, to listen. And so the crowd is increasing. People are coming from all over the place to hear him and to watch him. And from all sort of outward appearances, he was a, a, a cultural success. By all cultural criteria, he was a successful preacher. He preached and he preached and the crowd grew larger and larger. I mean, what, what preacher wouldn't want that, right? I mean, I know a lot of preachers. It's an interesting bunch we are. But I don't know any of them that I've ever had a conversation with who would say, boy, I really wish this Sunday my crowd would shrink some. Right? Every preacher wants a broader audience wants to have the opportunity to take God's word and communicate it to more people. But Jesus wasn't necessarily like that. In fact, today, many still judge preachers by the size of their audience, and many preachers judge their own effectiveness and their own blessedness by the size of their own audience. In fact, many preachers and many ministries in general structure everything that they do around trying to grow the size of an audience as though that were the only criteria that mattered. Jesus, as a preacher, was not interested in simply drawing a large crowd. He knows that there are very significant dangers that come along with a big crowd. 
And so quite frequently, what Jesus would do as the crowds would be increasing is he would, at some point, say something very difficult for people to swallow. He would teach something that was hard to believe, sometimes borderline offensive. And he would do that with a purpose. He, he, would, he would do it with the purpose of forcing those in the crowd to make a decision for him or against him and to either come to faith or to leave. He did it to thin the crowd. And here we have a very, very clear example of him doing this. This sermon, this message that he delivers that Luke records for us on this day would have been incredibly offensive to many of the people who were in the crowd on that day. It was not a sermon that was meant to soothe them into the kingdom of God in any way. It was, in fact, meant to very directly confront their self-righteous moralism in a very in-your-face kind of a way. In delivering this message, Jesus intended to do one thing. He intended to confront religious people with the reality of their lostness. That's what he has in mind here. And so, in his sermon introduction, the first thing he says is, this generation is an evil generation. He looks out at the crowd, and he says, all you people who have gathered, you're evil. How's that for a sermon introduction? I took it easy on you this morning. Right out of the chute, that's it. This generation is evil. That's a remarkable way for Jesus to start his sermon, particularly considering the fact that he's preaching in Israel. He's not in some Gentile land. He's not in some Gentile place around Gentile people. He's in Israel, and the broad group of people who've gathered are largely Israelites. The crowd is not made up of pagan Gentiles, but religious Jews. People who take particular pride in their relationship with God. People who see themselves as God's chosen people. People who look at themselves in the mirror and see themselves as godly and moral. People who look outside at the people in other nations and the people around them and see them as ungodly and immoral and make that distinction quite well known. And into such a crowd, Jesus says, right out of the chute, you people are evil. You're evil. This is no, no soft welcoming introduction, right? I mean, it doesn't start out with, it's nice to see you here today. Thank you for coming to listen to the sermon I hope you enjoy what you hear today. I'll try to make it relevant for you. No, he says you're all evil. And it's particularly shocking because they were very religious people and because they were very moral people. Particularly in comparison to the peoples around them. And yet, when Jesus looked at them and he assessed their hearts, he says, here's my judgment. You're evil. All of your religiosity and all of your outward morality, it's a sham to cover up an evil heart. He confronts them with the reality that their own self-assessment does not align with his divine assessment. And if they don't wake up and repent, they're headed for destruction. These people who've gathered the large part of the crowd are self-righteous and they're self-deceived. They're very much like the believers of the church at Laodicea. If you remember Revelation chapter 3, the letters to the churches, and in Revelation chapter 3, Christ speaks 
to the church at Laodicea, and he says this to that church. He says, I know your works, in verse 15, that you're neither hot nor cold, or neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Listen to what he says at the end of this. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Your self-assessment and my divine assessment do not match. You think you're rich. You think you're prosperous. You think you don't have a care in the world and don't need a thing. You think spiritually everything is great. You don't realize that the reality is you're wretched and you're pitiable and you're naked, poor, and blind. What a horrible position to be in. To be very religious and to be very moral and to yet have God assess your life and call you evil. Many people today stand in the same shoes spiritually of this crowd to which Jesus spoke on this day. There are a lot of people in our world, even in our culture, in our city, perhaps in our church, who are religious people. They do things like this on Sunday instead of fishing or instead of golfing or instead of hanging out on the beach. They, they attend services and they sing songs. They pray with other people and they listen to somebody stand on stage and talk. Maybe even they serve in a church. Maybe they volunteer their time or give their money. Everybody would look at them and say they're very religious people. Also very moral. In general, live a clean life. Don't they avoid the things that are, are, that are associated with sinful behaviors. And for the most part, they're nice, good, kind, gracious people. Yet, when God assesses their life, they're evil. They're evil. It's a horrible situation to be in. And yet, that was the crowd to whom Jesus was speaking. And he says the basis for this judgment. How could Christ look at them and make that kind of judgment about very religious, very moral people? What is the basis for him saying such a thing? Well, he says the basis for that is they seek a sign. The problem with you, he says, is you're evil, and the evidence for your evil heart is the fact that you're continuously seeking a sign. Now, Luke doesn't elaborate on that, but Matthew does. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, in the parallel passage, Matthew says this. He gives us some information Luke does not. He says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What was the evidence that they had evil hearts? The evidence that they had evil hearts is that they're coming to Jesus demanding that he give them some sort of a sign. They want him to do another miracle. They want him to impress them with his supernatural ability. Yet Jesus had already done a number of miracles. 
a number of miracles. He had given numerous signs, and they had ignored them all. If we were to just track back through what Luke has recorded for us in his gospel, we can go back and we can see him exercising at least on two or three occasions demons from people who were completely and utterly demonized. We, we, we could go back and see Luke record for us him cleansing a leper. He heals a paralytic. He healed a man with a withered hand right in the middle of a church service. He healed a centurion's servant from a distance, from miles away. He didn't even go where she was. He just did it. He raised a, a widow's son. You may recall, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and, he, and he's walking down the road, and he meets a funeral procession in the road, and this poor widow from the town of Nain is, is, is burying her only son. And Jesus turns a funeral procession, a burial procession, into a celebration. When he tells that young man to wake up. He calmed a raging storm with only a word. There was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. You remember? She, she just touches his garment and she's healed in a moment. And then there was Jairus' daughter. Also dead. Now alive because of Christ. Thousands of people, well beyond the 5,000 maybe as many as ten or 15,000 people hungry, two fish, a few loaves of bread, and he feeds them all till they're full. Sign after sign after sign after sign, Christ has given over and over and over. And apparently none of those were convincing enough for this particular crowd. They weren't enough to convince them that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God who had come. So they continued to demand more signs. You see, the problem was not that they didn't have enough evidence. The problem really was they were self-righteous and arrogant people. Jesus came preaching a gospel of divine grace. He came preaching a gospel that says all men are sinful and all men fall short of the glory of God. He came preaching a gospel that says everyone, no matter how externally moral and religious you are everyone stands condemned before God because of our sin and there's no amount of human works there's no amount of self-made morality there's no amount of religious involvement that a person can be involved in that can make them right with God he preached a message that said men have to humble themselves and admit that they're sinners that men have to confess their sin and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and look to him to save them that that is their only hope they have to abandon every human work and human effort and lean wholly on divine grace. And yet this crowd was so entrenched in a gospel of human works that men can be made right through keeping the law, through being moral, and through being religious. And they did not want to hear the message that he was proclaiming. They did not want to hear the gospel of divine grace. And so, instead of believing the message he preached, instead of believing with all of the evidence of signs and miracles that he performed, they just kept demanding more evidence and more evidence and more evidence. And the reason that that's an evil thing for them to demand another sign of Christ is really twofold. On the first hand, it ignores all the signs that he's already done 
as though they weren't sufficient. And number two, it really shifts the blame for their lostness from themselves to Jesus. They're really saying, the problem that we have is not that we're evil. The problem that we have is you haven't given us enough evidence that you are who you say you are. So if we're lost, it's not our fault, it's yours. And Jesus responds to that by saying, you're an evil generation. You keep asking for signs, but I'm not giving you any more. Save one. The sign of Jonah. We'll come back to that one in a moment. Really just two thoughts related to this first piece here of judgment that I think are helpful for us to just sort of hang our hats on as a way of application. First, this. Christ has provided all the evidence people need to be saved. Do you hear me this morning? Christ has provided all the evidence people need to be saved. The evidence is there. The question is, will we believe it? Will we receive it? Will we bow before him as our Lord and Savior? And then secondarily, willful unbelief always desires more evidence. And yet no evidence is ever enough. I'm sure if you are active in sharing your faith at all, that you've run across people who are steeped in willful unbelief. They want to argue about every controversial thing, and they want to get you involved in apologetics kinds of conversations where you're having to defend your faith and convince them with evidence that what they are saying is untrue and that Christ really is the Son of God and so on and so forth. And probably like myself, you've had these encounters with people where the more you give them evidence, the, the less it satisfies and the more they want more evidence and the conversation goes nowhere. This is like 95% of theological conversations on Facebook. That's where they go. Because when someone is steeped in willful unbelief, they have a hardened heart. They don't want to hear the truth. And no amount of evidence is going to convince them. The only thing that will change that is the Spirit of God awakening their heart. He says to them, you're evil. You have all the evidence you need. I'm not going to give you any more signs. He then calls two witnesses into the courtroom, doesn't he? in verses 31 through 32, to justify that judgment of them being evil. After openly judging them as evil, calling them evil, he calls two witnesses from the Old Testament into the courtroom, and he brings them there to validate his judgment. He says that, that these two witnesses are going to rise up and condemn these Israelites at the judgment. So it affirms a couple of things, first of all. The, 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 the witnesses that he's calling up have to be real people because they're going to show up at the judgment as witnesses that will condemn these Israelites. So the events of the Old Testament records about what happened in their lives are historical and true. And it confirms also that there's going to be a judgment at which we will all stand accountable for where we stand with God. And he says there's two two witnesses that will stand up at the end, rise up, condemn this evil group of Israelites. They will testify that that generation did not need more signs. They will testify and condemn that generation for not trusting in Christ with the evidence they had in front of them. And he couldn't have chosen two more offensive witnesses to call up into the courtroom. 
The first one is called here the Queen of the South. We find the story that relates to her recorded in 1 Kings chapter 10, where she's referred to as the Queen of Sheba. The first witness that he says is going to stand up at the judgment and condemn this, this generation of Israelites is an African pagan woman. Now, that doesn't land particularly offensive in our cultural context. But in that cultural context, the men of Israel would have been highly offended. Sheba was located in southwest Arabia, about a thousand miles from Jerusalem. If we were to look back to 1 Kings chapter 10, we don't have time to go through the whole story, but we would find an account of this particular ruler in this land, in somewhere in the area of Africa, in southwest Arabia. She had heard of King Solomon, king of Israel. She had heard of the divine wisdom that he possessed, and she sought out the truth. She wanted to know if he really did possess divine wisdom. She only had word of mouth that had traveled to her a thousand miles away. That was all that she had to go on. But she went to tremendous expense at that time to travel a thousand miles. She invested an incredible amount of time to make a journey of that length. And she did it to seek out Solomon and to find out if what she had heard was true. In verse 1 of chapter 10 of 1 Kings, we're told when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And she came to Solomon. She told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. What a remarkable encounter that must have been. She arrives in Jerusalem. She seeks out Solomon. She brings him all her questions. And Solomon answers all of her questions with divine truth revealed to him by Almighty God. Up to this particular encounter, this woman had no exposure to divine truth, only pagan idolatries. She had no Old Testament text to read. She had no knowledge whatsoever of the one true living God. But here in this encounter, this one encounter through Solomon, she hears the truth and the truth sets her free. Verse 9 of chapter 10, she says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who's delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king that you might execute justice and righteousness. The queen of Sheba with no Old Testament, with no exposure to divine truth, with no knowledge of the one true living God, with only a rumor of, of a king who had divine truth, travels a thousand miles, meets him, and believes. And Jesus' point couldn't be any more clear, could it? This pagan idolater had minimal information about the truth. This generation of Israelites was steeped in the Old Testament. They've been hearing it since birth. The queen of Sheba had to go to great cost to get to a place where she could hear divine truth. This generation of Israelites had the embodiment of truth in the person of Christ standing literally in front of them. The queen of Sheba believed when she was confronted with divine truth. 
This generation of Israelites was so entrenched in their willful unbelief, they refused to believe when God himself was looking them in the eyes. The Queen of Sheba found enough evidence to be saved. And these Israelites were drowning in evidence. And all they could do was keep demanding more. On the day of judgment, they'll have no excuse. This woman will stand. And her life and her testimony will be a living condemnation on that entire generation. There's another, there's another witness that'll, that's called to the courtroom. The men of Nineveh, the Ninevites. Well, we don't have time really to go through all of Jonah's ministry, but I'm sure it's one of the most well-known minor, minor prophets Jonah is, right? How many of you know the story of Jonah? Like, you know the story of Jonah, like the worst prophet ever, the most reluctant prophet in the world. God tells Jonah, I've got a job for you. I've got an assignment for you as a prophet. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah, in good, rebellious form, hires a boat toward Tarshish, the opposite direction. I'm not going to argue with you, God. I'm just going to go the other way and refuse to do what you've called me to do. So he gets in a boat, and he heads the opposite direction. God goes to great lengths to redirect his wayward prophet, doesn't he? We're told in the, the, the book of Jonah that, that God hurls a storm at the boat. Literally, God hurls a storm at the boat while he's on the water. Eventually, he's tossed overboard when the people in the boat realize what's going on, but they realize that they're in the midst of not just some natural weather phenomenon, but they're really caught up in the, the typhoon of God's judgment on a wayward prophet. They toss him into the, into the water. And you know the story. God has prepared a great beast of some sort to swallow him whole. And there, God has a captive audience, if you will, with his prophet. It's kind of like when you were a kid. You know, when you were a kid, did your parents ever do that? Like, go over and sit in that corner, and you just sit there and think about what you did for a while. Did your parents ever do that to you? Is it just mine? I think it was just you, Dad. I don't think anybody else did that. I'm just realizing this. You go sit over there and you think about what you did for a while. I used to hate that. Like, I just beat me. I don't care. Do whatever. Don't make me just go sit and think about what I did. That's torture. Well, God gives Jonah a time out in the belly of a fish. You sit there for a few days and reflect on your life <laughs> and your ministry. He does that. His life is preserved. And the next thing we see of Jonah, he's being vomited up on a beach right where he was supposed to go to begin with, in the right direction at least. Jonah was the most reluctant prophet ever. He hated his audience. The Ninevites were brutal pagan people. There was history between them and the Israelites. And Jonah was an Israelite, and he had all this racial hatred in his heart. He did not want to see the Ninevites saved. He absolutely was repulsed by the idea that God might save people like the Ninevites. And he did not want to see God save them. And he knew that God was a gracious God. And he knew if he went and preached that God might just do that. And he wanted no part of that. Because he hated his audience. And even when he gets there, he preaches the most short, bare minimum message that's ever been preached by any preacher ever. He goes to the town and all he says is, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
Like if you think about what is the bare basics of obedience that you can get to for the prophet Jonah, that's it. Go through the city. He had 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He has to obey God, but he's not doing one more thing. He performs no miracles. He conducts no extended teaching. He doesn't do any exhortation of the people. He just walks through the city shouting that one sentence. And the Bible tells us in spite of Jonah's reluctance, in spite of Jonah's hatred, in spite of Jonah's racism, in spite of all of the mess that's going on inside of Jonah, the response of the Ninevites was incredible. Incredible. Through that simple message that Jonah reluctantly delivers, he turns the heart of all the Ninevites. The king of Nineveh heard, we're told in Jonah chapter 3, what was going on. He arose from his throne, he removes his robe, he covers himself in sackcloth. He sat at ashes, all signs of repentance. And he issued a proclamation and he published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah and they turned to God. Such a contrast between the Ninevites and this generation to whom Jesus is speaking. One greater than Jonah was standing, far greater than Jonah was standing in front of him. Jonah hated his audience. Jesus loved these people with an everlasting love. He earnestly desired their salvation. He performed miracles after miracles after miracles as signs that he was who he was. He taught them. He exhorted them. He challenged them. He warned them over and over and over. And ultimately, he would die for them. And yet they wouldn't believe. They just wanted more signs. And so the Queen of Sheba and the Ninevites will stand at the judgment as a condemnation. I wonder what the Queen of Sheba and the Ninevites would say to our generation, to this generation. We have even more evidence that Christ is who he says he was, that he's done what he said he did, than that generation of Israelites had. We live on the other side of the cross. We are even more accountable. Jesus says to them, I'm not going to give you any more signs except the one. The only sign you'll be given is the sign of Jonah. And it's in the midst of this scathing sermon that he offers this one little ray of hope. No more signs but one, the sign of Jonah. What is this sign of Jonah that Jesus speaks of here? He looks back to Jonah's ministry, and he sees in it a parallel between Jonah's ministry and his ministry. There was a way in which Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, then which Jesus is going to be in like fashion assigned to the Israelites. This word sign usually refers to a miraculous event of some sort. 
And it's clear from Jesus' language here that the sign that is going to be given is something that's going to be given in the future at the time that he delivered it. It hadn't been given yet. So what is he talking about? What is this sign of Jonah? Well, if you were to read Luke commentaries, you would find commentators wrangling about this over and over and over again. And I'm not really sure why, because Jesus explains in Matthew 12, verse 40, exactly what he means by the sign of Jonah. And he tells us precisely what parallel he has in mind. In Matthew 12, verse 40, he says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is the sign of Jonah that he's going to give them? He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Jonah was tossed to death. He was buried in the sea. He spent three nights in the, the belly of a sea creature and on the third day was vomited back up on the beach, back to life. The people of Nineveh knew that story. This man who was tossed overboard and survived in the belly of a fish and lived to tell about it, he had to be from God. He's the original Aquaman, right? Better listen to him. Jesus says, in like fashion, I'll give you one more sign, and it'll be kind of like Jonah. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be nailed to a Roman cross where I'm going to bleed, paying the price for your sins. I'm going to die your death, pay your penalty. And when I breathe my last breath, I'm going to be buried in a, in a tomb, and there I'll sit for three days. And on the third day, I'll rise again. I'll come back to life. That's the last sign you're going to get. My death and my resurrection. If you reject that, I have nothing else to offer you. That's the last. The death and resurrection of Jesus. The evidence is abundant, isn't it? This generation of Israelites had all they needed to be saved. Jesus had given them evidence beyond evidence beyond evidence beyond evidence. But like Harry R. Truman... They refused. They refused to believe what they were hearing. And they chose a foolish alternative. And they hardened their hearts and they entrenched themselves in willful unbelief, in self righteousness and moralism, trusting in their own good deeds and their own morality and their own religious ritual lifestyle. On another occasion, Jesus said, look, when people are entrenched in this sort of place, even when somebody rises from the dead, they still won't believe. And that's been the testimony of the generation to which Jesus spoke and every generation since. The heart of the Christian message has always been the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the story of the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the only way that men can be saved is by believing that message that Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures. 
and he rose again from the grave for their eternal life. And yet, for generations, people have heard the message and rejected it. Even with a living man from the dead. What about you? You're here this morning. Who do you identify with in the story? Do you identify with that woman who, who cried out because she understood who Jesus really was? The evidence to her was convincing and overwhelming. She cried out in belief. Or do you identify more with these religious Jews who are in the crowd that day? Or you're, you're a good person. People look at you on the outside and, and they see you at work and they see how you treat your neighbors and they think, you know, that's a good guy. That's a, that's a good lady. She's kind and gracious and nice to her children and seems to be good to their spouse, willing to help when somebody needs help, very moral. Get in their car and they go to church on Sundays. Very religious. And yet on the inside, evil. Because you're trusting in those things to save you rather than Christ. Our only hope is Jesus. Crucified, buried, and raised. He's always been the only hope of mankind. And he's given us all the evidence we need to believe in him. The only question is, will we? Will you? Will you trust him today? Will you abandon all your religious works? Will you abandon all your morality? Confess your sin. Bow before him as Lord and Savior. Hang all of your eternal hope on what he's done for you on the cross. It's the only way to be saved. You've heard the warning. Believe it. Receive Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we hear this message. And really only in our sanctified imagination can we imagine the impact it must have had on the crowd that day. It was a hard message that you delivered. It was direct and to the point. It was condemning. It had to have been hard to hear. And yet it's the truth. The Israelites didn't need any more evidence. They needed to repent and believe the evidence in front of them. And that's what we need too. I pray, Lord, that if there are any in this room who are trusting their own selves, their own goodness, if they think they can just be good people and in the end it'll all sort of weigh out, show them what a lie that is. Show them that even on their best day, their righteousness is but filthy rags. Show them that they could work their whole life to be good people and would still fall so far short of the perfect righteousness you require. For the one who's trusting in their own religious activity, help them to see, Lord, that devoid a heart that is on fire with love for you, religious activity, Prophets, a man or a woman, nothing. It only becomes a 
thin veneer of religiosity over an evil heart. May they put their trust in you. Lord, unlike the generation that you spoke to on that day, for whom you told them the sign of Jonah was coming, we live way down the road of history. Centuries down the road of history. For us, the sign of Jonah is way in the past. The danger for us is not that we would miss it when it comes, but that we would forget about the fact that it happened. And its impact would wane in our hearts and our souls. The danger is that we become in love with the world around us and we forget the cost that was paid for our sin. Our hearts grow cold and they grow distant. But in your kindness to us, you have given us a means by which we can remember the sign of Jonah, your death, your burial, resurrection. You did that by instituting for us a meal and calling us to share on it regularly. A meal that would remind us as we gather what you've done for us, the price that was paid for our sin. A meal that would remind us of your deep and divine love for us. A meal that would shake us out of our complacency. That would chip away from our hearts our love for the world and realign our hearts with you. A love for you. And so it's with joy that we gather in these last moments of worship around your table to share in that meal and to remember your death on our behalf. Lord, help us as we approach this meal not to take it lightly, not to approach this meal with known sin in our hearts that we are harboring in rebellion. But in these moments, Lord, cleanse us. Forgive us for our sin. Realign our hearts to you. Help us, Lord, as we do this to remember you. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen.